Chapter Seven of the Gentle Grafter by O. Henry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leslie Walden. Chapter Seven A Midsummer Masquerade. Satan, said Jeff Peters, is a hard boss to work for. When other people are having their vacation is when he keeps you the busiest. As old Doc Watts or St. Paul or some other diagnostician says, he always finds somebody for idle hands to do. I remember one summer when me and my partner, Andy Tucker, tried to take a layoff from our professional and business duties. But it seems that our work followed us wherever we went. Now with a preacher, it's different. He can throw off his responsibilities and enjoy himself. On the 31st of May, he wraps mosquito netting and tinfoil around the pulpit, grabs his niblick, breviary, and fishing pole, and hikes for Lake Como or Atlantic City, according to the size of the loudness with which he has been called by his congregation. And, sir, for three months he don't have to think about business, except to hunt around in Deuteronomy and Proverbs and Timothy to find texts to cover and exculpate such little midsummer penances as dropping a couple of louis d'or on rouge or teaching a presbyterian widow to swim but i was going to tell you about mine and andy's summer vacation that wasn't one we was tired of finance and all the branches of unsanctified ingenuity even andy whose brain rarely ever stopped working began to make noises like a tennis cabinet hi ho says andy i'm tired I've got that steam-up-the-yacht Corsair and hole-for-the-Riviera feeling. I want to loaf and indict my soul. As Walt Whittier says, I want to play pinochle with Mary Duvall, or give a newting to the tenants on my Tarrytown estates, or do a monologue at a Chautauqua picnic in kilts or something summery, and outside the line of routine and sandbagging. Patience, says I. You'll have to climb higher in the profession before you can taste the laurels that crown the footprints of the great captains of industry. Now what I'd like, Andy, says I, would be a summer sojourn in a mountain village far from the scenes of larceny, labor, and overcapitalization. I'm tired, too, and a month or so of sinlessness ought to leave us in good shape to begin to take away the white man's burdens in the fall. Andy fell in with the rescuer at once, so we struck the general passenger agents of all the railroads for summer resort literature, and took a week to study out where we should go. I reckon the first passenger agent in the world was that man Genesis. But there wasn't much competition in his day, and when he said the Lord made the earth in six days, and all very good, he hadn't any idea to what extent the press agents of summer hotels would plagiarize him later on. When we finished the booklets, we perceived easy that the United States from Pasadumkig, Maine, to El Paso, and from Skagway to Key West, was a paradise of glorious mountain peaks, crystal lakes, new-laid eggs, golf, girls, garages, cooling breezes, straw rides, open plumbing, and tennis, all within two hours' ride. So me and Andy dumps the books out the back window and packs our trunk and takes the six o'clock tortoise flyer for Crow Knob, a kind of dernier resort in the mountains on the line of Tennessee and North Carolina. 
we was directed to a kind of private hotel called Woodchuck Inn, and thither me and Andy bent and almost broke our footsteps over the rocks and stumps. The inn set back from the road and a big grove of trees, and it looked fine with its broad porches and a lot of women in white dresses rocking in the shade. The rest of Crow Knob was a post office and some scenery set at an angle of forty-five degrees and a welkin. Well, sir, when we got to the gate, who do you suppose comes down the walk to greet us? Old Smoke-em-out Smithers, who used to be the best open-air painless dentist and electric liver-pad faker in the southwest. Old Smoke-em-out is dressed clerico-rural and has the mingled air of a landlord and a claim-jumper which aspect he corroborates by telling us that he is the host and perpetrator of Woodchuck Inn. I introduces Andy, and we talk about a few volatile topics, such as we'll go around at meetings of boards of directors and old associates like us three were. Old Smoke'em Out leads us to a kind of summer house in the yard near the gate, and took up the harp of life and smoked on all the chords with his mighty right. Gents, says he, I'm glad to see you. Maybe you could help me out of a scrape. I'm getting a bit old for street work, so I leased this dog day's emporium so the good things would come to me. Two weeks before the season opened, I gets a letter signed Lieutenant Perry and one from the Duke of Marlborough, each wanting to engage board for part of the summer. Well, sir, you gents know what a big thing for an obscure hustlery it would be to have for guests two gentlemen whose names are famous from long association with icebergs and the cobergs so i prints a lot of handbills announcing that woodchuck inn would shelter these distinguished boarders during the summer except in places where it leaked and i sends em out to towns around as far as knoxville and charlotte and fishdam and bowling green and now look up there on the porch gents says smoke em out at them disconsolate specimens of their fair sex waiting for the arrival of the duke and the lieutenant. The house is packed from rafters to cellar with hero-worshippers. There's four normal school teachers and two abnormal. There's three high school graduates between thirty-seven and forty-two. There's two literary old maids and one that can write. There's a couple of society women and a lady from Haw River. Two elocutionists are bunking in the corn crib and I've put cots in the hayloft for the cook and the society editress of the Chattanooga Opera Glass. You see how names draw, gents. Well, says I, how is it that you seem to be biting your thumbs at good luck? You didn't used to be that way. I ain't through, says Smoke'em Out. Yesterday was the day for the advent of the auspicious personages. I goes down to the depot to welcome them. Two apparently animate substances gets off the train, both carrying bags full of croquet mallets and these magic lanterns with push-buttons. I compares these integers with the original signatures to the letters, and, well, gents, I reckon the mistake was due to my poor eyesight. Instead of being the lieutenant, the daisy chain and wild verbena explorer was none other than Levi T. Peavy, a soda-water clerk from Asheville and the Duke of Marlborough turned out to be Theo Drake, of Murfreesboro, a bookkeeper in a grocery. What did I do? I kicked them both back on the train and watched them depart for the lowlands, the low. Now you see the fix I'm in, gents, goes on Smoke'em Out Smithers, 
I told the ladies that the notorious visitors had been detained on the road by some unavoidable circumstances that made a noise like an ice jam and an heiress, but they would arrive a day or two later. When they find that they've been deceived, says Smokemout, every yard of cross-barred muslin and natural-waved switch in the house will pack up and leave. It's a hard deal, says old Smokemout. Friend, says Andy, touching the old man on the esophagus, why this Jeremiah, when the polar regions and the portraits of Blenheim are conspiring to hand you prosperity on a hall-marked silver salver? We have arrived. A light breaks out on Smokemout's face. Can you do it, gents? he asked. Could you do it? Could you play the polar man and the little duke for the nice ladies? Will you do it? I see that Andy is superimposed with his old hankering for the oral and polyglot system of bunkoing. That man had a vocabulary of about ten thousand words and synonyms, which arrayed themselves into contraband sophistries and parables when they came out. Listen, says Andy to old Smokemout, can we do it? You behold before you, Mr. Smithers two of the finest equipped men on earth for inveigling the proletariat, whether by word of mouth, sleight of hand, or swiftness of foot. Dukes come and go, explorers go and get lost, but me and Jeff Peters, says Andy, go after the come-ons forever. If you say so, we're the two illustrious guests you were expecting. And you will find, says Andy, that we will give you the true local color of the title rolls of the Aurora Borealis and the Ducal Portcullis. Old Smokemout is delighted. He takes me and Andy up to the inn by an arm apiece, telling us on the way that the finest fruits of the can and luxuries of the fast freights should be ours without price as long as we would stay. On the porch, Smokemout says, Ladies, I have the honor to introduce His Gracefulness, the Duke of Marlborough and the famous inventor of the North Pole, Lieutenant Perry. The skirts are all a-flutter, and the rocking-chairs squeak, as me and Andy bows, and then goes on in with old Smokemout to register. And then we washed up and turned our cuffs, and the landlord took us to the rooms he had been saving for us, and got out a demijohn of North Carolina real Mountain Dew. I expected trouble when Andy began to drink. He has the artistic metempsychosis, which is half drunk when sober and looks down on airships when stimulated. After lingering with the demijohn, me and Andy goes out on the porch, where the ladies are beginning to earn our keep. We sit in two special rockers, and then the schoolmarms and literators hunched up their rockers close around us. One lady says to me, How did that last venture of yours turn out, sir? Now I'd clean forgot to have an understanding with Andy, which I was to be, the duke or the lieutenant. And I couldn't tell from her question whether she was referring to Arctic or matrimonial expeditions, so I gave an answer that would cover both cases. Well, ma'am, says I, it was a freeze-out, right smart of a freeze-out, ma'am. And then the floodgates of Andy's perorations was opened, and I knew which one of the renowned ostensible guests I was supposed to be. I wasn't either. Andy was both, and still furthermore, it seemed that he was trying to be the mouthpiece of the whole British nobility and of Arctic exploration from Sir John Franklin down. It was the union of corn whiskey and the conscientious fictional form that Mr. W. D. Howlett's admires so much. 
Ladies, says Andy, smiling semi-circularly, I am truly glad to visit America. I do not consider the Magna Carta, says he, or gas balloons or snowshoes in any way a detriment to the beauty and charm of your American women, skyscrapers, or the architecture of your icebergs. The next time, says Andy, that I go after the North Pole, all the Vanderbilts in Greenland won't be able to turn me out in the cold. I mean, make it hot for me. Tell us about one of your trips, Lieutenant, says one of the normals. <laughs> sure, says Andy, getting the decision over a hiccup. It was in the spring of last year that I sailed the castle of Blenheim up to latitude 87 degrees Fahrenheit and beat the record. Ladies, says Andy, it was a sad sight to see a duke allied by a civil and liturgical chattel mortgage to one of your first families lost in a region of semi-annual days. And then he goes on. At four bells we sighted Westminster Abbey, but there was not a drop to eat. At noon we threw out five sandbags, and the ship rose fifteen knots higher. At midnight, continues Andy, the restaurants closed. Sitting on a cake of ice, we ate seven hot dogs. All around us was snow and ice. Six times a night the bosun rose up and tore a leaf off the calendar so we could keep time with the barometer. At twelve, says Andy, with a lot of anguish on his face, Three huge polar bears sprang down the hatchway into the cabin, and then— "'What then, Lieutenant?' says the schoolmarm excitedly. Andy gives a loud sob. "'The Duchess shook me,' he cries out, and slides out of the chair and weeps on the porch. Well, of course, that fixed the scheme. The women boarders all left the next morning. The landlord wouldn't speak to us for two days. But when he found out we had money to pay our way, he loosened up. So Andy and me had a quiet, restful summer after all, coming away from Crow Knob with eleven hundred dollars that we enticed out of old Smokemout, playing seven up. End of chapter seven.